right. Well, good morning. We're here. Did everyone gain a little weight? A little bit? Maybe too much? Who overate? A little bit? Yeah, like three people. The rest of you are liars. <laughs> Lying. <laughs> or there's just one any good food, maybe. Uh, but for us, I know we are it is always uh, exercise like crazy before and after, so that you can just maintain the weight that you're at. Um, but this is the season, about a month of just eating, eating, eating. And then later on today at the, at the fair, whatever you call it, uh, <laughs> afterwards, please go to that, it's amazing, uh, you will eat again. Um, and so... Turn with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to finish Mark chapter 2, uh, verse 23 to 28 this morning. And like we said last week, and as I was praying, one of the things that we want to do is we want to see Jesus, who he is, exactly who he is from the pages of Scripture. So many of us, we could take people's word for, this is who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is to me, etc. But really, the point of this series, which is going to take probably a couple years to get through, it's just that we want to see who he is. I want to know the real Jesus. And really, that, that is the most important question that we can answer on planet Earth is who do people say that he is? And all these people, even when you saw that halfway through this book in Mark 8, as we, we did kind of an overview a couple months ago as we started this, that is the pinnacle that is the climax of this book in Mark 8, the middle of the book, 16 chapters. We find who do people say that I am? And people had all sorts of ideas of Jesus. And frankly, today, if you look at world religions, nobody denies Jesus' existence. It's just the fact of the matter that they may not consider him God. And he is. He is the Son of God. And this Christmas, even more so, just even looking at uh, the birth of Christ as we ponder that, as we look at that, just the miracle of the birth of the Virgin Mary and the Spirit hovering over Jesus, allowing her to conceive the Son of God. Do not forget what this season is all about. I know that that is very cliche, is the reason for the season, all that kind of stuff, but the reality is that it, He is. It's the reason why we celebrate Christmas. It's not Santa Claus. We don't even do that in our house. And all the other things that people do. It's more just fun, whatever. But the reality is, it's about Jesus. And keep it about Him in your family as you raise your kids. Keep it about Him. You won't regret that. You know, I hear all the time that kids are saying, well, if Santa Claus isn't real, then is Jesus real? And kids can't, they, they don't understand those things. And so build your kids' faith with Jesus. He's the giver of all good things. He's the righteous judge. And so look at him this Christmas. Amen? All right. Let's get into this thing. We're going to talk about the Sabbath for two weeks straight. So this is part one of Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath. Kind of a little subtitle is Legalism Destroys. Legalism Destroys. And hopefully this will be really helpful and practical towards the end of this message as we kind of unpack 
what Jesus is really trying to communicate here through this uh, very familiar story about the Sabbath. So let's pick up in verse 23. So, so far what happened was Levi was a uh, tax collector. We saw the, the salvation of Levi. He invites Jesus to the house and he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And this is who Jesus is. He's one who hangs out with sinners. He feels very comfortable with them as opposed to the Pharisees who give him a hard time. And so we're going to see this, this uh, division between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it's only going to escalate, obviously, as you know, to his death. And the reason is, is because Jesus just is not religious enough. He doesn't follow the rules, man-made rules. And here's another one. Uh, either they don't follow the man-made rules or they distort God's law which in case the Sabbath was a good thing. So in verse 23, it says, And it happened that he was passing through, this is Jesus, passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, then ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man, which is a title of his deity, says, it is the Lord even of the Sabbath. And we'll talk about the implications of his statement there uh, towards the end. But I want to give you just a little intro of the Sabbath. And for those who have family members or know people of the Seventh-day Adventists, maybe they're a part of that, this might be a little helpful for you uh, in, in maybe having some sort of debate or conversation with them. And so the intro of the Sabbath, God actually instituted it at creation. So he created a... Uh, he created the earth and the animals and the plants, and it took him and us. It took six days to do that, and then he rested on the seventh. And so Genesis two two says, "By the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done." So this was a, a part of the old covenant law, and we'll get to do, do Christians today need to abide by this old covenant law. So in Exodus 20, when he established the law, he's confirming what he did at creation. And so Exodus 20, 8 through 11 says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it, you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. He modeled that. He was working, even though just he could think it, something could happen. But he modeled that so to give us a gift, knowing that how our bodies work. Our bodies are going to toil all week because of the fall. And work's going to be very difficult, very hard, laborious, toilsome. So he gave us that gift to just rest on the Sabbath day. To acknowledge that God is the giver of life. To worship him. To enjoy him. To enjoy family. To enjoy the gifts that he's given us. It was a gift. And of course we know later that the Pharisees ruined this amazing gift. 
by adding so many rules, which we'll see here in a moment, how ridiculous it really got. And so he rested on the Sabbath day, and therefore the Lord blessed it and made it holy. It was a gift for all of us. Even today, it is a gift. Now, we don't celebrate the Sabbath as far as being it was on a Saturday, uh, the last day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. That's how Christians, they celebrate the first day of the week by going to church like we're doing today. But for them, it was refrain from all work. And this is what the religious leaders did. They distorted the Sabbath. They distorted the, the, the enemy could only counterfeit the good things of God. And the enemy, Satan, through people who don't know God, distorted this day of rest by additional rules 15 centuries later from when God instituted the old covenant law on Sinai. So on the Sabbath, let me read this. This is from uh, the ordinances and law of the Sabbath in the Mishnah in the Jerusalem Talmud. So this is uh, basically older literature that the this is how the Pharisees would, would see how the, uh, <clears throat> the Sabbath would, would be during that time of the first century. So on the Sabbath, scribes could not carry their pens. This is going to get really ridiculous. So just hold, hold on here, okay? So this is, it gives you guys a, a, a kind of an idea of what was going on and how much they distorted this simple gift of resting and enjoying God and family. On the Sabbath, scribes could not carry their pens. Tailors could not carry their needles. Students cannot carry their books. To do so might tempt them to work on the Sabbath. For that matter, carrying anything heavier than a dried fig was forbidden. And if the object in question had been picked up in a public place, it could only be set down in a private place. If the object were tossed into the air, it had to be caught with the same hand. <laughs> to catch it with the other hand would constitute work. And therefore, be a violation of the Sabbath. No insects could be killed. Now, that'd be really hard, wouldn't it? For some, at least for me. Our rule is if the insect gets in the house, it's dead. If it's outside, just leave it alone. It's God's creation. No candle or flame could be lit or extinguished. Nothing could be brought or bought or sold. No bathing was allowed. Since water might spill onto the floor and accidentally, you have accidentally have to wash it then afterwards. No furniture could be moved inside the house since it might create ruts in the dirt floor and thereby constitute plowing. An egg could not be boiled if one did, did it, was, it was placed in the, in the hot desert sand. A radish could not be left in salt because it would become a pickle and pickling constituted work. Sick people were allowed, uh, were only allowed enough treatment to keep them alive. Any medical treatment that improved their condition was considered work and therefore prohibited. It was not even permissible for women to look in the mirror, get this, because when they, when they looked in the mirror, they might be tempted to take out the gray hair, and that would constitute work. Nor were they allowed to wear jewelry, since jewelry weighs more than a dried fig. Pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Well, there's more. If you care to know. <laughs> Other activities were also banned on the Sabbath, which include washing clothes, dyeing wool, sharing sheep.
spinning wool, tying or untying a knot, sowing seed, plowing a field, reaping a harvest, binding sheaves, threshing wheat, grinding flour, kneading dough, hunting a deer, or preparing its meat. Now that's going to become very relevant in the rest of the story here. But a person was not allowed to travel more than 3,000 feet. And they didn't have any uh, you know, Apple watches to detect that, so they have to literally walk, uh, count the steps. And they knew what 3,000 feet was. They got pretty accustomed to that. Uh, and they found ways around it. They were not even uh, able to uh, take more than 1,999 steps, uh, which was probably, I don't know how they figured that out with the 3,000 feet from, from they could travel 3,000 feet from home. And they got away with that. Watch this. Due to practical concerns, the rabbis devised creative ways to get around this. If one placed food at the 3,000 foot point before the Sabbath began, that point was considered an extension of one's home. Thereby enabling a person to travel another 3,000 feet. Or if a rope or piece of wood was placed across a narrow street or alley, it was considered a doorway. Making it part of one's home, allowing the 3,000 feet to travel, begin to travel there. Like that, that start a new 3,000 step for our, our feet for them, I guess. In modern times, Jewish neighborhoods connected houses together using cords or ropes. Doing so, from the perspective of rabbinic law, created a single home out of every connected building. Allowing people to move freely within the defined area without being limited to the 3,000 foot restriction. And to carry certain uh, household items. It just got ridiculous. They just added more laws and more restrictions to this amazing gift. None of this you can find in the Word of God. That's the problem with legalism. Is they're just additions. They sound like God's Word. They sound like God's heart. But they're really just to put burden on the people. In fact, remember in Matthew 15, 1 through 9, we see the not only the, the hideousness of, of what the Pharisees did, but also the cruelty and how it hurt people, how legalism hurt the people. Matthew 15, 1 through 9 said this, then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders, which they're doing here in this passage? For they do not wish to wash their hands when they eat bread. So this is a different uh, rule that they're bringing up to Jesus. And Jesus, remember, is responsible for his disciples' actions. And so they're always accusing him. because They're not going after the disciples necessarily, although they will. You see later in the book of Acts, but they're going after the head. And he answered them and said to them, Why do you, you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? She turned it on, its, turned it on them and said, God said, Honor your father and mother, who's, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, Whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. He is not to honor his father and mother. So they found a way to get around. They really didn't want to honor mom and dad. They had no intentions of doing that, loving their neighbor, practically loving and sacrificing for people that were in need. They, were, they had no, they had no uh, desire at all to do such a thing. And so what they, they would do is they would use the word of God and add their traditions to it 
to somehow make it look like they're pleasing God, all the while neglecting their neighbor. And that's what they were doing. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. In other words, you're breaking God's law by adding your own tradition to get you out of actually serving your neighbor. People do that all the time. And you, you, it says straight up, Jesus just doesn't mess around as he says, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the precepts of men. Recently I went to lunch with uh, one of the pastors who, he pastored a He's in Eustis right now, about an hour away. We met up for lunch here in Oviedo. And he was just, he, he's new to the area and he just wanted to hang out and get to know like-minded pastors. He's found us online somehow and uh, he wanted to meet up. And so I said I would. And he, he had planted churches in Buffalo and Louisville and different places. And he was telling me a story because we were talking about just some, some of the seri uh, series that we're in. And he's in John and I'm in Mark and we're talking about the scriptures and... And he was, he was saying something interesting. He said, I, I had to get out of my old church, which was, I think this one was in Louisville, Kentucky. And he couldn't, he, he couldn't believe how much they adhered to the Sabbath. They distorted it just like the Pharisees were today. And he, he would have, every weekend he'd have people come over and they'd hang out at the pool, at his pool. And his kids would be in the back and they would be jumping in, splashing his little kids in the pool. And and uh, the people that he did church with would say, you know, it, it is not lawful to do work on the Sabbath. It's not right that your kids are in the pool. Flashing. I have my jaw dropped. I'm like, do people really do this? I mean, like, and this is not like Seventh-day Adventism. This is like a normal Protestant church, you know, mainline denominational church. They complained that, and he's like, "Don't we have, you know, bigger fish to fry? I mean, don't we have bigger problems? I mean, than my kids, you know, yeah, you know, try to shut the blinds. I mean, what?" <laughs> but people are like that, especially people that don't know God. But you know that the Sabbath is not required today for New Testament believers. Now let me rattle off a few scriptures to prove that and then we're going to get into our passage. Sound good? It's a little longer intro today. We'll be fine. All right. Colossians 2.16 Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Could be more clear. Romans 14, 5 and 6, no person regards one day above another, and other regards every day alike. And so there's a sense of freedom in that. If you want to choose to do Sabbath a certain way, or honor God a certain way, or how to spend your day, as long as it honors God and you're not judging another person, Romans 14 gives us the ability to do that freely as believers. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Uh, you must do it by faith. 
He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does it for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who, who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. And so you see there's a level of freedom in our relationship with God and how we are to live. We are not to put extra demands on each other in the church because that will hurt our relationship not only with God, and it, it will, because you're going to think that you doing certain things is going to somehow get you closer to God or win his approval more, but it also will hurt each other. We also will, uh, and this happens, and we'll break this down practically how we do this and how we actually are all in some level legalistic. Roman, our, uh, Galatians 4, 9 and 10 says this, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary things, or elemental things, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. In other words, you've been saved by grace. You don't need to turn back to the old covenant demands, which were just to show us, in a lot of ways, our sinfulness. Or, in other words, it was to, uh, to separate Israel from the world, to show that they are God's people. It was the ceremonial laws that would show the purity of God's people. They were never meant to save. Because Old Testament Christians or Old Testament saints were saved by grace, just as New Testament Christians are saved by grace. So why go back? So people that are stuck in you know, the, the cults today or you know, even uh, Seventh-day Adventism, you know, you, you, they're going back to the old covenant law to try to please God. And the reality is they've been saved by grace. And why are they going back to something that God gave them as a gift? But now they distorted that and said, you know, we have, this is part of the Ten Commandments. We need to go back and need to observe the Sabbath day as a, a day of rest with no work, no fun, no play. That's not God's heart. Because as we see here, the early church set aside the first day of the week, and that was Sunday. You, the, even the, the church, the patristic fathers, the early church fathers in the first 400 years, you could read their writings. They were the first to say, hey, we, we are, Justin Martyr was one of them, and said, we are going to observe the first day of the week, Sunday, uh, not so much as a day of rest, that's key, but more so a day of gathering to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Because that's when he resurrected on the first day. He died on Friday. He resurrected on Sunday. Acts 20 verse 7 says this, On the first day of the week when they were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day and prolong his message until midnight. And then 1 Corinthians, remember that night? Remember back in the book of Acts, the guy fell over, uh, the, you know, died. That was the first church service. Uh, but it all worked out. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6, 2, 16, 2. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. So the first day of the week, that was Sunday. It was Sunday. But for, for the sake of this passage, we're going to see the implications of uh, what Jesus, is, Jesus was trying to show us. So even though, 
it might sound weird that I'm going this direction, but I want to show you that uh, a couple of points here. One, that we do not need as a, as a uh, church and New Testament Christians observe the Sabbath anymore. The p real point of this passage is not so much whether Jesus honored the Sabbath or not. He had a, a, another purpose to this. It was to show his compassion, that he desires mercy over sacrifice. It was to show us the dangers of legalism, how it hurts the church, how it hurts our relationship with God. That's the point. But there are other implications, such as maybe uh, you know, refuting uh, other cults, uh, but, but more, more so Jesus in this, Mark's point is to, to show you the, the wickedness of the Pharisee's heart. When somebody was in need, when somebody was hungry, Jesus met that need. And that's the beauty of this, is that when the disciples were hungry, Jesus says, I'll feed you. And the Pharisees were all bent out of shape because they broke their traditions. All right, let's pick up in, uh, so one little contextual note here. Uh, first, I, this passage this week will take place uh, basically in the, in the, in the synagogue, or, I'm sorry, not in the synagogue, in the fields, and then the next passage, part two, uh, verse, th chapter three, verses one through six, will take place in the synagogue. And so we'll just see two different passages that have to do with the Sabbath. But at least uh, by way of introduction, at least we got this. And so next week as we go in, we'll, we'll slide right into the true meaning of the text and see Jesus beautifully again. All right, Mark 22:23. Passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, disciples, the disciples were hungry, so they took the grains and then they ate them. Now, the question we've got to ask first, before we take, before we apply anything, it is very important to ask this question. Were they doing something wrong legally? Were they doing something wrong legally? That is very important. With Jesus, it's not some sort of free-for-all, right? He's not going to break the, the, the God's moral law. You'll never see Jesus break God's moral law. That's very important. We're talking about a ceremonial law here. So this isn't a free-for-all if, you know, uh, we got to choose between the lesser evil type thing. We're not going to go into any of that stuff. I know there are false teachers out there that try to tell you that you could you know, choose between lesser law. It's, it's a silly thing. It's important here to understand is Jesus always upheld the law. That is so important for our salvation. If he does not uphold the law, which he says he, he has not come to abolish the law, but to uphold it, to fill every part of it. And we see him do that, even to the minute details. That is important to our salvation because he needed to be an unblemished lamb. He needed to be a perfect lamb that fulfilled all the law as we couldn't. So Deuteronomy 23 25 says this, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, when you may pluck the heads uh, with your hand, you may, you, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So what is actually happening here? He, he's, you can't take a sickle to it. In other words, you can't work the fields. That would be stealing. But God had a way of providing for his people when they were in need in a small way. 
It was a small gesture saying, look, if you find yourself in need walking through, because they didn't have the roads that we have, so they had to go through people's fields. And as they went through the field, if they were hungry, God made provision for them. And so they could, they could take, uh, you know, just enough to feed them. You know, you're not, you're not taking a sickle, you're not taking big bags with you, and then taking that home that would be stealing, as we said. And so they weren't doing anything wrong. In fact, they were obeying the law. They were obeying the moral law of God. And in verse 24, we see the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful? They were actually breaking the Sabbath rules. God would reverse this. Jesus would reverse it back on them. They weren't doing anything wrong. But what what did they actually accuse the disciples of? You could not technically reap on the Sabbath. But the Pharisees said, well, they were picking grain. Even, even the small little, if you pick one seed, it's wrong, they would say, at least according to their traditions. You could not legally sift, but yet they were removing the husks and the shell. So they were saying, look, you're, you're uh, you know, Jesus, your comrades, see, they're reaping and sifting. What? No, they're not. They're not doing that. This isn't a job. This isn't work. This is to fulfill some... They're, they're, hung, they're hungry. They, they need some food. Show some compassion. They were accused of threshing by rubbing the heads of grain, blowing away the chaff. You could see the sheer silliness of this. They were winnowing by throwing the chaff in the air. They were... They were preparing a meal, because you couldn't prepare a meal on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees were like, well, they're preparing a meal. Y'all could just see Jesus being like, what in the world is wrong with these people? (laughs) They didn't break any law. For the record, we could confidently look at this and say, no law was broken. No law was broken. They, they fulfilled Deuteronomy 23. These leaders were not concerned about the hunger and the well-being of the followers of Jesus. They had no desire to, to see people, excuse me, to see people um, that were in need be satisfied by the provision of God. There was nothing in them. They were so cruel. They were so hard-hearted. They were only concerned about their hypocritical laws because they wanted to be in control. And that is the first problem, really, with legalism, is that those who practice legalism want to be in a place of control. And when people get out of line, not out of line because of God's moral law, but out of line based on their addition to the law, their additions, their traditions, that's what irks them. That's what gets them all bent out of shape, so to speak. So what does Jesus do? This is interesting. Whenever you find a problem, you need to go to the scriptures. This is the profound nature of Jesus. He goes back. He's not, he's not giving an opinion, although his opinion would be scripture. <laughs> but he's not going to, he's not saying like, this is what I think. He's going to the scriptures. He's giving it a, a profound an illustration to show you how hard-hearted they are. 
So he gives this illustration. This is what he says in 1 Samuel 21, 1 to 6. Jesus ultimately says here, have you never read what David did when he was in need and his companions became hungry? Because this is what happened to my disciples. There's a parallel here. You know what he was saying with, have you not read? He's saying, look, I know you've read this. You can't be a Pharisee without knowing God's word. But you don't understand the meaning. And that's the problem with some of our Bible reading, right? We take, we take words out of context all the time. To what? Control people. Know the context. That's why many people come up to me sometimes and like, well, this is what the Bible says. Yes, that's what the Bible says. Wrong context. Wrong context. And that hurts them, of course. We like control. Human beings like to be in control. And they will use whatever legal part of Scripture to try to control people. And that's exactly what they were doing. He's saying, look, you've totally missed the point. Ironically, they were breaking the Sabbath law and they were breaking the moral law of God. And we'll see what. First Samuel 21, turn there. One through six. The priest answered David, there is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is, a cons there is consecrated bread. If only the young men had kept themselves from women... So they were able to eat this, uh, you know, ordinary bread, uh, basic, or I'm sorry, consecrated bread, and we'll get to the background of that, what that it was, only if they kept themselves pure from women. It's kind of an interesting note there. Uh, but David answered the priest and said to him, surely women have kept from us, or I'm sorry, surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? He fulfilled that. They didn't do anything wrong with women. They were pure. They were simply just hungry. And so the priest gave him the consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to, to not, excuse me, in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. So in other words, what happened was, on the Sabbath, they, uh, they made 12 loaves of consecrated bread and they put it in the, the, the holy place. And when, uh, when the time, that was a, kind of a dedication to the Lord as an act of worship. But then what happened was, uh, if people found themselves in this place, in a, in a place where they were hungry, like the priests, they could eat the old bread, not the new fresh bread, uh, because that was only for the Lord. And so in this case, uh, all that was there was the consecrated bread. It was the fresh bread. It was the bread that was only to the Lord. And in that case, the priest said, look, David, because you're in need, I'm going to give you that fresh bread. I'm going I'm to I'm break the ceremonial law so that I can fulfill the greater need. God doesn't need bread, Right? I'm gonna, I, I, I appreciate that. And, and a normal, everyday, they weren't like flippantly like, oh, I'd rather have the fresh bread than the ordinary bread. Or, I mean, than the, the, you know, the old, stale, weak old bread. 
There ain't playing games. They were genuinely in need. And here's the context of this, which is even more interesting. David is fleeing Saul. He, he has no provisions. This is God's anointed one. This is, uh, this is the king. This is, this is his chosen one. And his companions are fleeing from evil Saul. And they have no food. Do you think that God would want to provide for him? Yes. Do you think God, this is who God is, that they are running from Saul. And they find themselves at the place of the priest who represents God. Do you think that God would want to starve his people in order to just display the fresh bread on the altar, which God doesn't need bread to eat? No. God wants to provide for his people. That's the point of this. He recognized their needs, so the priest showed compassion and gave them the bread. And Jesus is saying, look, do you not understand the meaning of this? It's so profound. I mean, just even this year that Jesus just whips this up, you know, like whips us out of nowhere, these scripture passages that just bring such conviction if you're listening, if you have ears to hear, if you have eyes to see, if you would understand. The unregenerate unbelievers like the Pharisees, they don't understand it. They, 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 they may, oh, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I know the word. Really? Because this is the exact same scenario that I find myself with the disciples in the grain fields. If you would have just put two and two together, you'd understand it's the same story, buddy. Same story. <laughs> same story. Hmm. But they were so dense. They were so into their own traditions. They totally missed it. Totally missed it. It was so sad as you read this. It's so sad to see. Jesus' point in this is, look, if people find themselves in need, quit your traditions. Quit your additions to the law. Meet somebody's need because I desire compassion. Not sacrifice. And they totally missed it. Do you know who the only person that was objecting to the priest giving David and his companions bread? Saul. I find that very interesting. Saul. We're the only ones having a hard time with Jesus providing, or God providing, his disciples, the Son of God. I mean, it's one thing for David. It's the lesser to greater kind of uh, argument, if you will. If, if, uh, if it was permissible for the priest to break the ceremonial law in order to give David and his companions food, how much more is God himself walking through the fields able to provide Something so small as a few grains for his disciples. 
Really amazing, isn't it? Really amazing. You could just you just see God in every passage exposing the hearts of religious people. Like you and me. Like you and me. But he also does equally, he exposes the beauty of Jesus in every passage. And that's the point, that's the reason why we're going through this incredible gospel. Is to expose our hearts. Jesus, would you expose my heart and show me where I'm being legalistic. Show me where I'm being uh, hard on others or adding to your moral law. How I'm demanding people to get in line with my way of life so that I feel good. And how I neglect just showing compassion. That is what Jesus came to do. Is to show that kind of compassion to you. To sinners. To eat with them. To be with them. To provide for them. And even break even ceremonial laws to provide. And then... Uh, <laughs> that was a probably really uh, irking these people. Watch what he says next. Verse 27 and 28. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. They were frustrated to no end that, he, that Jesus broke their man-made rules. That was enough to put them on the cross, so to speak. But not only that, but he says this. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Why is that important? Because he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be God in this passage. Because who has right to establish the Sabbath? We saw that earlier. Genesis 2. God established the Sabbath. He says, the seventh day is the Sabbath day of rest. In Exodus 20, the same thing. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, I'm establishing for you today a day of rest. And Jesus is saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am in control of this whole scenario. And the Pharisees, you're wrong. How you treated my people. In fact, you came from Saul. How you treat, how Saul treated David's companions. The same way you Remember John 8, your father is the devil, when he told the Pharisees, virtually saying the same thing, thing to them there in this passage. He's saying, look, you're just like Saul. There's a, there's a need right in front of you that you don't, want to, you don't even care to meet it. Why? Because you're so busy with your own controlling life. You just want control. You love being king like Saul. You love being the Pharisees with all their phylacteries and all their scripture verses on their heads and their everywhere else in their homes and just showing off how much they know God and, and then put heavy burdens, the blind leading the blind. And he got in trouble for this. Actually, this story in John 5, I'll show you here. He got in trouble this before. This, John 5 took place before Mark 2. In the synop if you look at the harmony of the Gospels. 
So he says this, immediately the man became well. This is John 5, 9 through 18. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who, he, who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now. This is key. This is why he's able to do these things on the Sabbath is because he is Lord of it. He can do what he wants without breaking God's morals. He says, my father is working until now and I myself am working. He says, look, I'm equal. Whatever my father's doing, I'm doing and we're equal. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, same context as Mark 2, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. It's amazing. And that's encouraging for you. It's encouraging. And so there's so many implications to, to the scriptures, aren't there? The fact that he's God, he shows plainly that he is God. That is Mark's goal. On every page, of, of scripture, of every page of his book, he wants you to know he's God, he's God, he's God, he's God, he's God, and that's good news for you. And that he doesn't break any laws in order to fulfill his purposes. At least moral laws. Laws that are relevant still today. So what are the dangers of legalism as we close? I, I believe there's a, a few reasons why all of us Seeing that it, for all of us, legalism in, in some level is appealing to us in this room. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, it provides us with a sense of security. Legalism provides, if you're into that, which we all are, it provides us a sense of security. Because we always know what to do. Uh, knowledge is power, isn't it? Maybe we're reading the scriptures because we want to know more of God because we want to, not because we don't know more of God, because we want more power. We want more knowledge. We want more information. And that information makes us feel good. Because, you know, we might have, we might, you know, in the circles, we don't want to feel like the dummy. We want to make sure that we know our stuff. Right? Pride is nurtured in that, in our legalism, right? It nurtures our pride. It makes us feel good. Look at what I'm doing. It says, look at what I'm doing, willing to forego that others embrace. Think of the things that you do or maybe don't do that others maybe perhaps embrace and do and that makes you feel a little bit more superior. And you're friends with these people. 
Yeah. And God loves me. You know this. You may not say it out loud, but you, as you do these things, you secretly say to your heart, God loves me. He loves me more. I feel closer to him than maybe perhaps that guy who is embracing those things. They make us feel in control. They make us feel that there's order in life. Because, you know, we can't, we can't get out of order. We can't allow anyone to get out of order in our presence, can we? Even though maybe our lives internally are completely out of order. So people's lives who are a disaster inside are probably a lot of times the most legalistic because they have to control the outside because inside they're out of control. We never see the secret sins because that would, of course, expose and make us look bad, right? And there is a level, another appeal is there's a level of conformity, uh, comfort in conformity. There's we like that it makes us feel like warm and fuzzy inside when people are conforming to our additions. When we tell people, maybe even in a discipleship context, we're telling people, get up in the morning, 6 a.m., get up and then do this, do this, and then do this, and then do that, and encourage, and this, and that, and the other. You're adding, 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 adding. And it makes you feel good. And the other person probably feel extremely burdened. Because you're in a winning season. In a winning season. Think about that. The problem with legalism is this. R.C. Sproul says, like the Pharisees, we create rules that we keep instead of obeying the rules God gives us, which are much more difficult to follow. You know what the hardest command to follow is? Love God with all your soul, strength, and mind. Just line up to the front right now, those who do it perfectly. No one. But line up to the front, those who have kept perfectly this week. Quiet time. No one's embarrassed. No one's confident in that, right? I mean, you've kind of embarrassed, but I guarantee you some of us have winning streaks this week. And that makes us feel really good, doesn't it? It has nothing to do with grace. The problem with legalism is we're obsessed with the means and not the end. We're obsessed with the means and not the end. The end of the Sabbath was just to enjoy God. And they were obsessed with the means. The means. Life group. Discipleship. Missions. All the things that we do can be distorted. We could distort the means of God, the means of grace, is the reformers called it. The means of grace. We're all like that. We all have winning streaks. All of us. I thought someone was going to come up and had that perfect seven day streak. That would be hilarious. They're standing there like. <laughs> we might even go a year perfectly announcing. The fact that we don't miss quiet times. We've never missed a life group. 
Why is it that the guy who always misses a life group ends up having more blessing on his life? I don't know. We'll never figure those things out. We can be legalistic with a quiet time and totally miss God. In fact, we can read our Bibles and not love our roommates. We can be legalistic with date nights and miss our spouse. And miss our spouse. We can be legalistic with everything that is good. Because the enemy will distort the means of grace. Because the end is to know God. The end is to fall in love with Him. And here's the deal. Do you enjoy doing the time, your time with God? Do you actually enjoy that? Only the Holy Spirit can allow you to do that. The Holy Spirit gives you the discipline to meet with God and the joy to meet with God. And remember, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control, discipline, and joy. You can't fool God. You know what? The Pharisees couldn't fool him either. And that's what Jesus' point here is. I'm exposing this. <laughs> you have the scriptures. You know the scriptures better than these disciples do, probably. But I am the son of David. And I've come to meet their needs. And there's always going to be a Saul working in the background, isn't there? Sometimes that Saul is us. That Saul is us. The older brother in Luke 15 is us. Sure, we might find ourselves like the younger brother. We all have. That's easy. But a lot of us don't like to admit that we're the older one. But you know what the father did for both? Because he was waiting for the younger one to come home. And he didn't. He, he, he didn't withhold his grace, did he? Did he withhold his grace in the older? No. He went in the room where the pity party was. He opened up the door. He said, look, you're a part of my house just as much as that guy. And he didn't want to go in. He despised the grace of God. Please, never get to the place where you despise the grace of God. The problem with legalism is we never know our true need. It blinds us from our true need and it blocks us from the grace of God, doesn't it? But in this passage, what I don't want you to miss is the point is that Jesus is incredibly compassionate to sinners like you and me. Listen to what Sam Storm says. Legalism itself comes in two forms. And we only look at it one way. We, we watch this. I thought this was very interesting. On the one hand, are those legalists who insist on the obedience to the law, especially their law, as a condition for acceptance with God. To be saved, one must submit to rules and regulations, sometimes biblical ones, sometimes not. But at the heart of this is a variety of legalism, or at the heart of this variety of legalism is the idea that works are conditioned for justification. The other kind of legalist may well affirm salvation by grace, through faith, which is all of us probably in this room, but demands that others submit to his image of what constitutes true spirituality. Invariably, he or she sets extra-biblical guidelines, identifies morally prescribed activities, and then severely judges those who fail to measure up. 
And the problem with this legalism is that we are blind to our own need. And when God begins to expose that, we're undone. It's like Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, right? In the presence of God, he's disintegrated. Why? Because he finally sees himself in the backdrop of holiness. Not their own rules and regulations. Most of us, if we walk through life, we're just going to measure ourselves up to other people. Our own standards. And we'll feel quite great about that. So therefore, we have little grace in our life. Little grace. But if we want big grace, if we want Niagara Falls type grace flowing through us, flowing on us, then we have to realize how amazingly holy God is and how he doesn't tolerate our legalism and how he actually hates our legalism. He hates is what people call the proverbial religion of man. He hates it. I'm going to do this as a mom uh, to show off how perfect my kids are. That's foolishness. And then behind the scenes, they're a little devil, or as Vladi Bogdan calls it, a viper in a diaper. <laughs> right? We never see the true problem. And therefore, we won't see the true remedy. But I think most of us probably see the problem. I think most of us, as we close here, the band come up with the, is we, uh, as I was kind of reflecting on this this week during Thanksgiving, I had a little bit you know, more time to reflect on these things. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I think most of us probably see the depths of our sin. I think most of us are tired of legalism. And we, a lot of us forget the gospel and we uh, forget that we don't graduate from grace as we often say here. We forget these things. This is why I think it's important what Jesus was trying to say is look, if you find yourself like a Matthew, if you find yourself like a Peter, if you find yourself like the disciples just as a, a way of a metaphor, just walking through the grain fields hungry, wondering if God is going to provide for you, scared to death, wondering if I take that provision, will the enemy chide me? Will the enemy accuse me? We're sick of it. We're sick of legalism. We're sick of condemnation. And we are desperate to hear God forgive us again. We're desperate to hear God's grace and his gospel. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30 says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that so fitting for this passage? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, not from those guys. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That might be really encouraging for you this morning. You might need that this morning. Grabbing a hold of his grace, realizing I'm a miserable wretch this week. I've thought things that are not pure. I've said things that are not right. 
I've done things that are not good. We all find ourselves there. We may not find ourselves in this legalism. We find ourselves in this perpetual messing up day by day by day. One pastor said this, if you had only a few words to define who Jesus is, what would you say? In the one place where he finds himself tells us, in, in the one place where he himself tells us about his own heart, he says, I am gentle and lowly of heart in Matthew, 20, or Matthew 11, 29. Peer down into the deepest recesses of Jesus Christ, and there we find gentleness and lowliness. This is who Jesus is. He wants to show compassion towards you, a sinner. The one who is struggling and constantly hating his sin and beating his breath, saying, when will it end? When will it end? I'm sick of my sin. I hate it. Yet our hearts resist this because all we see is the ugliness. We resist God's compassion. We, ex- we resist his lowliness, his gentleness. We resist even Matthew 11. We're saying, man, if only someone could just give me relief. And Jesus said, I am giving you relief. I want to give you relief. I want to show you that I am that gracious towards you and that loving towards you. And that forgiving, we feel so inadequate. What we see is not only that Jesus is gentle toward you, but that he is positively drawn towards you when you are most sure he doesn't want to be with you. It is not that he is is repelled by your fallenness. He finds your need and emptiness and sorrow irresistible. You hear that? Just look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Who does he hang with? Sinners. Who know it? We miss out on this amazing fellowship with God because we miss his grace. We miss his goodness. With whom does he eat lunch? The sideline, the hollowed out, those long out of hope, those who have set their lives into meltdown. You know what's encouraging about all this? What I find encouraging throughout the week, and I'm sure you will find encouraging, is that if you're in this struggle, if you're in this battle, be encouraged. You're his. Because you know what? The unregenerate, they don't, they don't really care. They don't, they don't care to, to be in, a, in this kind of battle. They're not interested and you, as you beat yourself up throughout the day, if you're, if, you're, if you're like one of those people, as I find myself often in, not, woo, I'm scot free, this is wonderful. There's that side of the pendulum. But maybe, why am I not damned yet? Why has God not killed me yet? Because I see his holiness and his righteousness through the scriptures. And how beautiful Jesus is. But that's only half the battle. We've got to run to him. Knowing that he will cleanse us. And I want to end with C.S. Lewis. That I find so encouraging. He says this. I know all about the despair. Of overcoming chronic temptations. It is not serious. Provided. It is not serious. Provided self-offended irritability. Annoyance at breaking records. Impatience etc. 
doesn't get the upper hand. No amount of falls will really undo us if we keep on picking ourselves up each time. We shall, of course, be very muddy and tattered children by the time we reach home. Just think of a boy as he goes out to play in the mud and then he's probably scared to death to come home realize his mom won't be very happy. But listen to this. But the bathrooms are all ready. The towels are put out and the clean clothes are airing in the cupboard. You hear that? You can come home with confidence knowing that he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now listen, the only fatal thing is to lose one's temper and give up. It is when we notice the dirt that God is most present to us. It is the very sign of his presence. Amen? Isn't that so encouraging? That we can run knowing that the bathrooms are ready. They're ready to hose you down. They're ready to free you of all the dirt and all the sin and all the condemnation as you look to him, as you look to Jesus. Father, thank you so much for, for giving us this amazing grace for loving us so much by sending your son, Jesus, to come and die for us, that there is provision. We never graduate from grace. Never gets, we never get too tired to hear, maybe in different ways, how you want to cleanse us from all sin and draw us near is actually to those people in the room that are in the battle and in the fight. They are to be encouraged this morning. Father, encourage them. Whether it's this quote from C.S. Lewis or the scriptures here that show us that you desire compassion, not sacrifice. That just as you provided for your disciples as they walked through the grain fields, Committed no wrong. You provided them even through your moral law a way to feed them. And you provided through the sacrifice on the cross to feed us and nourish our souls with this gospel of grace. And we thank you for that. Thank you so much for coming alive in the pages of Scripture. Something that we, even as human beings, don't deserve because you see here the Pharisees had the Bible also and did not understand it. But yet we understand because he said through Paul and Corinthians that by the power of the Holy Spirit we understand and without the Spirit we don't understand. And Father, thank you for the gift. Thank you for this gift, the power of the Holy Spirit to give us uh, your gift of grace don't deserve it, this life. And Lord, I, I see that even it, by embracing the cross and embracing grace, you know, it, it, the trials and the tribulations don't seem as big. They don't seem as weighty compared to all that you have planned for each believer in the room. That we're headed towards heaven. And that we are thankful for that that we have all of eternity to be with you, to gaze upon your 
beauty. And I pray, Father, that you would tenderize our hearts this morning towards the real you. That we would see that in the Pharisee part of us doesn't actually produce any life. The fact that we gravitate naturally towards legalism and that, God, that help us to see that it actually hinders us and it blinds us from the glory of God and that we want to see how holy you are, how righteous you are, and how sinful we are and how you extended your hand even in the midst of that. In the midst of our depravity, it was while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And I pray that you would encourage people who beat themselves up over and over and over again because they see no end to their sin and no real provision that they would see that the power of the Holy Spirit is able to transform us from one degree of glory to the next by looking at you, by looking at the word of God made flesh, by seeing how incredible you are, not focusing on ourselves, not trying to be in the control seat with others, but really being control-less, dependent people, people who are needy and admittedly needy and that we get to see that you're also providing in the grain fields your grace by calling yourself the bread of life you came down so that those who eat will never be hungry again and those who drink will never be thirsty again let us like that first song let us be satisfied by you let us be satisfied by your grace and your provision and mercy and love and your joy. Let us relish in it. Let us stand underneath Niagara Falls and let it wash all of our guilt and shame and sin. Father, I pray even specifically for the hard-hearted, for those people who just don't see it. I pray that the lights would come on, that they would be saved this morning, that they would truly know that you are judge, righteous judge, and will judge them for all of their sin. And like all the court cases we've seen this week, that the judge will render the verdict and I pray Father that they would choose you as the defense lawyer and advocate like it says in 1 John that we have an advocate with the Father his name is Jesus and when we believe on his life and what he's done we are guiltless we are not guilty. And we get to go home free. And I pray that there would be even one person that would come in this church that would have pride and reject this amazing provision of grace, only then to find out that they are rendered guilty for all of eternity. 
may, may those who feel the human lightness, may they feel the divine weight. And those who feel the divine weight may feel weightless as they leave, as they feel totally forgiven. Not just even uh, once at salvation, but for all of their life, remaining life on earth. The confidence of fellowship, the confidence of your pleasure on all of those who call you Father. I pray, Lord, that we would have an increase of joy in this church. That we would not be legalistic in any way. That we would be free sons and daughters. That we would treat each other with kindness and grace and mercy when we find someone in need. We would not be the Pharisee that object, but that we would find ourselves like the priests who come feed God's people when they're hungry. God, I pray that we would meet each other's needs. That we would look at the means of grace. It's a wonderful thing. Life group and, and discipleship and all the means of grace and missions and all these things is a way to get to know you more. The way to get to experience you more. I pray that we would not have a, a look at the, any of these means of grace as legalism that we truly embrace them. Truly embrace every single one of them so that we would get to know you more and we would get to know each other because that's truly what we get to experience at the heightened level in heaven for all of eternity. Pray as we leave this place, we leave with joy and peace that you have walked off these pages of scripture into our hearts and transformed our thinking transformed our lives because you are truly the son of God who came to seek and save save those who are lost and those who know they're sinners and need of a savior.